Joe Scanlon. I'm the co-founder and CEO of a company called Scanalytics. I'm Sudhir Reddy, head of engineering at Esper, as well as the host of this show. There's a device for that. Hi, Joe. Welcome to There's a Device for That. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing? Good to be here. Great to have you on the show. For our listener, can you tell us what sort of business you're in? Scanalytics. Works out nicely for when you find out what we do, but is also a shameless play on my name, which I was able to grab back when I started the company in college. So I usually get the question. But yeah, we created a, a sensor that allows for buildings to obtain an intelligence about how people and, and things move around inside of it and do it in a way that provides a really high resolution spatial kind of data gathering through the surfaces of the space, predominantly the, the floors of buildings. Yeah, we'll get a lot more into what you do because I'm especially fascinated since we talk about a lot of devices on the show and you don't typically think of flooring as a device or a set of devices and things. So this is so unique. I'm looking forward to that. But going back in a little bit of your own history, what got you involved in tech and, uh, and, and in inventions in general? Yeah, so I think for me, it was the feeling of creating something uh, from nothing, be it with you know commercial utility or not, has always held a special place in my heart, I guess, and continues to, even if it's a weekend project building by myself or with friends or with my now kids. So that's always been special to me. And I figured out that you can kind of have superpowers if you learn how to build, be it with atoms, with you know sensors or something, or with or with bits and bytes with software. So yeah, pretty early on, I kind of got into the, the bits and bytes side by creating little software tools that I was able to use young as well as into college and built my first kind of real app, I guess, in college. So that kind of, I guess, caught the bug from that. Awesome. Speaking of which, what was your first real app? What did it do? Yeah. So it's a funny story. I noticed that when I was going to bars on the weekends, you know, entering each each bar the, uh, in a college town, they'd have a bouncer who would have a like a manual counter, and they're you know they're sort of doing two two main things, right? They're checking the uh, legitimacy of your you know ID, and they were counting you know how many people are coming in, presumably to you know comply with whatever the occupancy rules were. And so I figured it might be interesting if I could create. And at that time, it was sort of you know if you think about like the square used to plug into the audio jack of like an iPhone or a phone. So I figured, you know, if I could borrow something like that and allow it to scan the ID and with that ID scan, it could check the efficacy of that particular ID as well as take non-person identifiable information from it, like age and gender, that the bar could use it to speed up the process that they were using, but also use it to create a better understanding of what the breakdown of the people were in the bar, like what types of, uh, you know, age and genders would come in at certain times. But most, I think, uh, for me, I, I built it because I was still figuring out the best way to meet, um, you know, girls at, at bars. And so I also, you know, built, I was able to, you know, have a back end where I could look at, you know, what were the best times given the ratio of male to female and age that were at bars at different times, and then make my decisions of when to go where based off of that information. So that was the first thing I built. It, <laughs> it's funny that I found out I think bars have the highest turnover of ownership that I've ever experienced. And so it was not successful by any means other than, I guess, for me to be able to navigate the social space a little bit easier. 
I love it. Love when you can build something that a business can use, but also more importantly, you can find the best time to yeah, go to a right. bar. Sign me up that's for that. Right. If you look back at your life, what was the first time you got fascinated by a device or technology that went, oh my God, this is so awesome? Uh, I think, you know, most basically, it's probably, you know, just the first, as, as I'm sure it is with many people, just my first experience with computer in general. So, you know, the ability to understand the inner workings of memory and programming and all that and having a computer, you know, to me, it was even fascinating that you could just have a, and at that time, like a literal floppy disk, insert that into a computer and it would run a program like a game or, or something like that. So that to me, again, that was a, definitely a spark. And I think the first real computer before I began sort of, you know, building them on, on my own, I think the first real computer I got was a, like, you know, something I bought from Goodwill that was a classic, you know, really heavy, you know, CRT monitor, still green and black screen with, with super coarse resolution. But yeah, it was just cool to see again, this, this thing with some, some level of intelligence that was of course not akin to, you know, our own intelligence, but like something that was reliable and, and that could, continue to do different tasks and and I, it could I think see pretty easily how it would grow and and what that would expand into so that was that was pretty exciting yeah you're taking me back memory lane I'm probably going to date myself but the first computer which I fell in love with computers with this were actually had it was like you said a CRT with green and black displays text only and I had to put two floppies in one that had the operating system in it and the other that yeah. had the program that you wanted to run in it. And that was just amazing. And it yeah. got me hooked. Here we are. Yeah. 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 yeah How definitely. about now? How about now? What, what's your favorite device that you use? So I've got like two camps of, and today and most recently, I've been interested in devices that help unlock. I don't want to say biohacking because it's so overused, but like, but intelligence on oneself, like this idea of N equals one to me is, is super powerful and impactful. Um, and so, you know, I've got sort of one device that I think I'd use, the one that I use most often, even though it's passive is just, I, you know, I wear an aura ring and it does a lot of the physiological sort of measurements, like heart rate variability, heart rate, sleep, et cetera. But I think the one that I, so I sort of, one of my most favorite ones is, uh, one that I only use corded. So I use it about every 90, maybe 120 days. And it's a portable VO2 max measurement. So it's a, you know, measuring the amount of oxygen uptake during physical exercise to give you an amount, which is basically, you know, millimeters of oxygen consumed per minute, depending upon what your weight is, you kind of get this number. And that number is a really big representation of not just where you're at athletically, because of course, that's what a lot of athletes use but tells you a lot of other things like your underlying cardiac health and, and stuff like that for longevity purposes or just, you know, I find that when I'm, when I have a more optimized, you know, VO2 number that I'm better across the board, I'm better with knowledge work, I'm better with physical work and those types of things. So that one's probably one of my favorites right now, just because it used to be that you had to go to a lab and get hooked up to tubes and kind of do the Gatorade commercial thing where now you can, you know, I can wear that portably. I can go to the local track or on my bike or do whatever and, and get that number pretty quickly. So. That was probably my favorite. I can see a trend here. I can see a trend of where you like bringing physiology and technology together, if those are the right terms, yeah. physiology, and doing something with it. That weaves into, tell me about how Scanalytics came about. How did you start thinking about this device, if I may call it a device, that can actually figure out where people are going in a particular space and things? So to me, it kind of came down to an intersection of a few things. One, of course, we spend a tremendous amount of our lives 
indoors. And I think that became maybe more obvious to people through the pandemic and afterwards. But even before that, it was, you know, 90, 95% of our entire life inside of buildings. And so to me, it was surprising that there wasn't a, I guess, silicon equivalent of a biological brain for the built world, meaning why aren't we giving enough effort to censoring up space in such a way that we can start to see what acceleration of intelligence for physical space is, what would that get us if we allowed it to kind of understand better how people and things were moving um, and using it. And so I didn't, you know, start the business thinking, you know, I want to build a floor sensor, which we'll get into, but like, I had no real understanding that that's where it would go. We asked ourselves some, I think, pretty important force functioning questions about, you know, what would it take to build a brain for the built world? And that, you know, those questions are sort of, well, it has to be something that would never impede on the privacy of, of the occupants in the space, because that's an important consideration. And it's a limiting factor of a lot of technologies that exist today. It also had to be applicable to, in our minds, at least every building that sort of has ever been built, as well as every building that presumably will be built. And that narrowed it down considerably, right? And so to us, that was like, well, all of them have surfaces, you know, we, we navigate the space by walking over the floor between walls under the ceiling. And so, yeah, we, we figured, well, if we could take one of those surfaces and leverage that as the ability to measure how people were using it, then we figured it would check all of those boxes from privacy to the data you could gather from a completeness perspective, as well as the ubiquity bucket, which was every building that has you know been built has a floor, every building that will be built will have a floor. And then I think one other big important component of that, of, of course, was also this thing only is really significantly more valuable the more coverage that it has, the more density of space that it has, the diversity of space that it covers. And so the other important consideration was, is there an existing commercial supply chain that could be leveraged or used that is underused today with respect to distribution of, of sensors, right? And if you think about like a Google or any existing kind of like Apple, et cetera, that was the answer before, which was you could take a pretty good bet that everyone that walks through a space will have a smartphone. And so that was like the best case back when we started the business, which was everyone was saying, well, let's take a bet on everyone having a smartphone. And that's fine for what it was, but that was leaving a lot of utility on the table uh, as far as we were concerned, because A, if you were third party, you were sort of building it off of someone else's hardware, which um, hardware is hard so that I understand that most people and maybe even smarter people than me index towards just building software on top of an existing hardware infrastructure. But we thought it was worth the bet to bring spatial intelligence a step change up, not just an incremental improvement, but actually build something that would unlock a much more important data set. Meaning if we could wave a wand and have every single footstep, every single path, you know, what happened inside those spaces, you could do a lot more than you could do if you just could ping a smartphone or ping a phone inside of a building. And so that's what we did. We said, okay, let's look at that commercial supply chain. And, and flooring was an interesting one because billions and billions of square feet of flooring is sold and installed every year. I, I think people don't recognize it when they walk through a space. It's like, well, now I do because I think once you see the sausage, you kind of can't walk into a space without knowing, you know, seeing sausage. But like, it's the largest surface area of the buildings that we spend our time in. All navigants make contact with it. And it's this huge market, you know, billions and billions of square feet that are sold and installed every year, that's not all new construction, right? Like, especially in commercial spaces, much more than, you know, residential. It's also every seven to 10 year cycle of that space or that existing flooring being renewed, right? Or, or you know, a new one laying down. And so we, we saw that and said, well, if we could then, you know, down the road, if we could optimize our sensor to fit into that supply chain seamlessly, then we would also have access and distribution, which is obviously just as important as 
the underlying technology that we were looking to push. Great. You actually touched upon a couple of things here that I want to reiterate and also tell the listener. First is that the path that you took of uh, not just going with someone else's hardware, but working with, with your own hardware and then being able to do a lot more things with it than you pr- probably would have been, uh, started with. A lot of our listeners actually do that. They start off with probably an off-the-shelf device and start building technologies on top, but very quickly come to the conclusion that, hey, this would be awesome if we could just build the hardware purpose-built for what we need to do. And that's where there's a device for that, by the way, covers a lot of that topic. And for the listener, I also want to say that a lot of what Joe just talked about, there's an excellent TED talk that Joe did that I had the opportunity to watch this morning, and you all should watch it. And we'll put the link to it in the description for this podcast. So for the curious listener, Joe, what is your business? What do you do? Uh, We talked a lot about flooring and sensors in the flooring, but what's the business model? How do you enable uh, your customers to do things? Yeah, so it's really two parts, right? So one we're describing and, and what I think is exciting that you guys cover with Esper is the device itself, of course. So what we built is a, a sensor. You can think of it as like a grid uh, sensor. So a you know four-inch pixel resolution sensor that can be this sort of sheet is not exposed to the naked eye, but is something that can, you know we've developed to be built on rolls and can be printed, you know, quite literally printed in, into existing flooring materials where I think the simplest way of thinking about it is it's basically like turning the entire floor surface into a big readable touchscreen, even though there's sort of two versions of the technology. One is resistive, one is capacitive. So when I say touchscreen, I don't necessarily mean literally only capacitive. If you can think about that, we have spent a lot of time, you know, our first sensor was 12 inch squared pixels. So a much coarser resolution that allowed us to still deliver a unique value to customers. But when we got to four inch pixel resolution, that allows us to do a lot more involved things like, for example, if you're assisted living facility and you're you're looking to understand, you know, can you predict the likelihood of a patient's fall risk? Being able to do that with a four-inch pixel resolution means we actually get a lot of the information on the deterioration of that patient's gait over time, such that making that prediction is much more confident than coarser resolution. So part one is is the sensor itself. And then part two, of course, is building the intelligence around the sensor. So what comes out of that, of course, is an incredible amount of data exhaust that continuing the thread of sort of neuroscience, I guess, you know, or brains, I guess, is a stream of consciousness. So it's almost like taking this incredible amount of data and information about how these buildings are used. If it's put in a stream of consciousness, then you can imagine different applications or different use cases want to use that the same underlying information that's coming off of this install base to solve certain challenges, right? So like the security cares about where people are going. If someone scanned a badge, are there actually two profiles of people that are moving through that space instead of just one? Those things that security care about, but then the marketing person might care about, well, you know, what are customers exactly looking at? What's their exact path? How, you know, if they look at product A, how long do they spend in front of product B? If we move this floor around and change things around, does that increase people's propensity to buy something? And we change the content in real time, you know, all that stuff is, is different, but, but it's all, it all comes down to how, how are these people and things moving through space and time inside of my building? And so we've got software that off the shelf, sort of able to put all that information into dashboards and APIs and all those things. But then also we think about how there are different abstractions of value beyond just that use case, uh, which we kind of consider tier one, but then tier two is, you know, there's this point of interest data market that is on its own $15 billion a year or so 
spent of just of just like third parties wanting to understand, you know, what are going on in certain types of of real estate spaces and how can they leverage that to do everything from purchasing equities to add attribution from offline to online. So yeah, we kind of cover the value chain from sensor, raw sensor, you know, output all the way through, you know, end use applications that are being built. Advanced analytics and things. And going back to your comment about the uh, brain for the building, I'd assume there's uh, applications and things like lead certified buildings, then being able to do all kinds of things with turning on the AC at the right time or saving energy. Yeah. So we're a proud multiple contract winner of the U.S. Department of Energy RPE program. So we've been working with them actually the last almost four years now. To your point, right, is that real estate is also, parenthetically, is the largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. And so not only can we unlock more utility out of spaces from a pure application perspective, but also combining that with HVAC, for example, which is a very energy intensive operation. It's kind of got a deceptively simple problem at the core, which is this energy occupancy mismatch, which is that has to uh, operate as though it's full capacity, even if it has a motion detector. That motion doesn't tell you the denominator, right? It just says there is motion. I don't know if that motion is from 10 people or 100. And so if I can, I have to operate as though there's 100 if I detect motion, because I don't know if it's not that. And so, so yeah, we, we've been working with them, had already great results showing upwards of 30 plus percent annual energy savings from just salt, helping solve that energy occupancy mismatch. And then as you can imagine, for us, that's about making a very straightforward, universal reason to adopt the technology is, you know, if you can reduce emissions and reduce costs associated with emissions, then it makes it much easier to build applications that can continue to deliver to that space, again, specific to like retail or assisted living or whatever it might be. It's a fascinating world that I know very little about, but I can immediately just connect the dots and try to, you know, there's so many use cases I can think of that this would help resolve. Tell us a little bit about the technology itself. So the floor is a bunch of sensors or one sensor, et cetera. I assume you treat that like an IoT device of sorts, and then you collect the data. And Tell us a little bit about that flow of information and things. Yeah, so the... The way that it works, you know, they, I guess, continuing the example of energy is a, is a good example of one where this information that we're gathering about specific to zones or even micro zones of, of where people are at in these spaces, as you can imagine, HVAC is also broken up by zones and what it wants to be more efficient is saying, hey, at any given time, I want to sample how many people are either absolutely in the space, just moving through the space or have been in the space for a certain period of time so that I know how much hot or cold air to circulate and, and push through the zone, right? Um, in that use case, it's pretty much as simple as that information being taken from our sensors. The raw sensor data comes out as sort of pixels being effectively on and off. And then our sort of what we call path reconstruction algorithms are taking that disparate but constant on off information and creating paths. So creating individual paths whereby if you and I walked, I mean, even immediately right next to each other in a hallway, we'd be able to still discern between myself and, and you as individuals. And so once that raw sensor data is turned into paths, as well as, you know, other information that could be used and plugged into APIs, then that path information is delivered in a couple of ways. One, of course, the work that we're doing with the government heavily favors strictly on-premise. So heavily favors no cloud relay and, and is just on a device, on a gateway device on site. As well as, of course, we have, you know, for many other applications, a relay to the cloud where more advanced analytics or more applications can pull that in and use it. 
And so for something like energy, it might even just go to an existing communication protocol like BACnet. And that way we don't have to technically interface with every single thermostat set point, but rather leverage whatever the building management system has in place. And then other ones that are not connected at all to the building management system is, you know, it's mostly just ensuring that we're on a security protocol that that space favors. And I assume that you also collect the data in the back end if if you're allowed and with security, of course, and all of that. And you could potentially provide aggregate level intelligence to various companies or to various uh, departments and things. Great. We talked about potentially helping in healthcare and potentially helping with retail and uh, energy efficient systems and things of that nature. What other applications do you see for the technology that you have? Yeah. So one thing to preface that, uh, that I think I'm most excited about is that I hope that I only know or I'm only thinking about five or 10% of the potential applications. I think similar to, I'd be remiss not to, probably everyone is now making this comparison to what's happened with AI recently, chat, GPT, all, all those good things, right? I think the most important takeaway from something like that is the intense creation of value that happens with plugins, right? So making it so that natural language interface can happen with all these other things. Like that's where we started to see a lot of new value extraction. I hope the same becomes true with spatial API. So the ability to say, well, if if I do have all this information about how these spaces are used and I'm not impeding on privacy of the folks inside those spaces, then you can start to imagine a lot of really unique things that could be created. I think what I'm excited about, again, to shamelessly borrow the wave that's happening now is you know, being able to speak to the space in a meaningful way does unlock a lot of value, right? So like the cool thing about staying below the public API line, I guess, if, if we want to call that where it could just be scraped, which I think importance to your listeners is that building with atoms is now, become, I think, going to become cool again, or maybe like acceptable again, not necessarily because it's all of a sudden easier to build with atoms. That's not true. It's still very difficult. However, what the hardware is creating with respect to data is going to be valued much more meaningfully than I think it has in the past. So in in our case, the way we see it is, well, the data we're creating about the largest asset class on the planet being real estate and all these different spaces, the the diversity of spaces from, as you said, healthcare to retail, et cetera, all that creates these, these data pockets that if I could then open that up for applications to be built so such that, you know, I might be a facilities manager or something like that. And I'm, I might want to say, hey, look, I want to interface with the space. I want to have a discussion with it so that it tells me what is the best plan of attack for you know cleaning the space or doing whatever I need to do to manage what I need. And the building has that information, right? It's just up to this point has never been organized and made available. To, again, as same example is the language stuff is great that's happening, but that, that the knowledge has existed. It's just taken the step of organizing it and making it available through a natural language interface. You know, I'm excited about those types of applications, but then I'm also excited about paving the way for more atoms to be built on top, which would be a good example might be a robotic autonomous vacuum cleaner that instead of just using solely LIDAR for mapping out a space effectively and then just cleaning that whole space at some preset time, which is a, a big step up from you know maybe manual usage, is that if it also had the context of where were people and how could it use that information to clean more effectively. And then I think maybe a you know one that I do want to talk about that is more difficult to talk about, but I think solutions need to be provided to our are things that's happening like safety in our schools, right? So, you know, I've got two young kids with a third on the way and reading every day about a school shooting or some other intruder event. What I think would be important would be the context of where people were at 
at any given time inside of a school made available to the incoming emergency services like police, fire, et cetera, their ability to more quickly, which, which matters a lot in, in those types of scenarios, more quickly keep people safe as well as more quickly identify where the lone wolf might be moving through the space, I think is important. And, and that could be possible with, you know, if that whole school was floor censored, that would be reasonably short, right? Like if I was coming in, I'd know there's an event. I could see congregations of people could see lone wolf activity and I could start to make much more informed decisions much, much quicker and ideally have a better you know, outcome. Great. That's awesome. Thank you. Joe, help me understand. There's also a lot of evolution and revolution in some cases happening on technology like cameras and sensors in the walls and things like that. How does uh, the Scanalytics flooring complement that or work with it? Uh, what are your thoughts there on how things work? Yeah. So I think we think the same way that we did when we were entering the space, which is that those existing sensors, I think, will always have a place in the ecosystem. Again, the, the space is so big that many of them can coexist. I think it's it's ultimately just going to come down to absolute application, right? So the way that we think about it, again, is we were figuring we were going to have to solve a much more difficult problem at the onset, which is how do you make a sensor survive on the floor, get all this data? But the question we asked was, if we waved a wand and the floor was telling us all this information, it would be the best no matter what, because the physical contact that it has with the navigants is you know, superior to, let's say, possibly radar or other things that could pick up signals, but might be more easily confused by other environmental factors uh, or interfere with other signals, et cetera. So we figured, okay, if we solve that first, like that'll be harder for us to go to market because all these other solutions you know, sort of are baked in on saying, hey, we're, we're super easy to install. You've seen it before. It's cameras, it's phones, and there's something there, right? Like there's still value extracted out of those solutions. A good example is if you just had a retail location and you really just wanted to know, I, I want a heat map of my IOAs and the activity and roughly where people were spending their time. My argument would be like, yeah, our stuff would probably be overkill for that. It would be able to solve that for sure, but not 10 times better than a camera. In some cases, maybe 20% better, but you know, we don't want to build a business on 20% better and... I think there are plenty of other solutions that could do that. But the way that we think about more of like, hey, look, let's not just focus on, again, that level layer one abstraction of value, which is the, in our minds, at least it's the ownership group, tenants and occupants. We think there's a lot of value to be extracted there, but we also think that if we can get that usage there to accelerate, again, the point of interest, data creation, and then the spatial API creation, that there's a really important flywheel going on there. And so, yeah, the technology, the cameras and all that, I, I think are going to continue to get that much better with resolution. I think where privacy is, is an interesting kind of challenge today, where even if you sort of say like, hey, look, this is not vision-based and, and, and you know, you've been around the stuff to know like the difference between thermal is not PII data, right? Or personally identifiable data, but it's still a camera. So if you put a camera in a conference room, let's say, and it's thermal and, it, and even if it on a big poster in the wall, it says, this is not looking vision at you. This is just thermal. You still might alter the behavior before you are measuring it, which is a difficult for whatever the outcome you're looking for, as well as you won't be able to put some of those other sensors in areas that are key to measure like bathrooms and fitting rooms and other sort of private areas that have historically not been addressed because of those issues. But then, yeah, I, I again, I continue to think that the ecosystem is best served by many of these sensors coming together and saying, hey, look, Sensor fusion is going to help 
bring a lot of really interesting applications to fruition. And that means we're going to need to play nicely with the other things. And the other things I think will want to play nicely with us. Yeah. You know, for a moment there, the, your description was reminding me of quantum mechanics. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but I'm a big fan of quantum mechanics. And uh, it's the measurement problem, right? The act of measuring actually yeah. influences yep. the the results that you're going to see and causes the wave function to collapse and things. So let's talk a little bit about the business side of things. Given this year has been tough for a lot of businesses, this year's uh, actually it's not over yet. It's unraveling as we speak. How has your business environment been? What's your advice to our listener right now? Yeah, I think so. Us specifically, as I mentioned, even well before this year and and the challenges of even years leading into this, like COVID was also difficult for anyone who is in physical spaces, obviously, is that, again, I think if you're focused on ultimately, which obviously this is a very simple concept, but like the value that you, like if, if you're looking in our case at building ownership, we needed from day one to build something that should be resilient to this. So it shouldn't be fashionable, meaning like just giving them occupancy to a building owner like again, you could argue many different applications for space utilization can be used by people like designing space to be more creative or collaborative and all those things. And I think that worked nicely pre-COVID, even immediately post-COVID. But like building owners are now now you've got the interest rate fluctuations. You've got all these other things where building owners are now looking at things and saying, "Look, you know, the combination of work from home and and work in office, like." my physical spaces aren't contracting to that change, right? Like they're not getting smaller because less people are coming into office. My physical building is still the size it is. It still costs what it costs to operate. And so they're looking for solutions that are not, how can I get a payback in five years if X, Y, and Z happen and this is how they might happen. But really like if I implement this, can you implement this in a way that is no cost consideration for them as an owner, as CapEx or, or OpEx, save them money and or help them make, you know, make more money. And so that was a difficult thing for us to bake in from day one. And again, I, we sort of took that as the challenge at the onset, which was we want to, it's going to be harder for us to build likelihood of success. Even making it past the first two years was probabilistically like very, very low, but making past it, we figured we could survive things like this because we could go to a space in the case of energy, for example, say, Hey, look, we'll put this in your space. No cost consideration to you as an owner. Will help you reduce you know your costs as well as your you know energy footprint. Which um, just a, you know quick note on that is I think you know real estate is the biggest contributor, but a lot of solutions are just coming in thinking they all they have to do is solve that problem, meaning like solve the emissions problem, and they're not thinking about the economic buyer. And the economic buyer, although they might be green as grass, they they might not care about that because the most acute thing to them is the space costs me a lot of money. I want to do good by the environment. However, right now this costs me this much and I'm facing potential issues. And so our solution, the way that we're navigating it is that we can address both of those things, right? We can address reduction of costs. We can address making spaces more profitable. A mall, for example, can reduce costs from energy, but also increase ad revenue by being able to give more you know, richer information about how people are interacting with those things in the mall. And so that that's, uh, you know, N equals one here, of course, but that's how we've addressed kind of navigating space. But that hasn't come with without uh, total issue, like waking up one morning and seeing that like a, a huge chunk of the addressable market is completely different overnight. That's happened. Yeah, multiple times. So, yeah, that's that's great advice. Focus on the value and, and look at what you're providing to the buyers and the thing and, and you'll be fine. 
I have to ask you this next question. For the listener, Joe's sitting in an amazing looking library with a beautiful space behind him and things. And this is a, in, in before the car, the show, we were talking about how Joe built uh, this with his family. Do all your floors have uh, scanalytics scanners or uh, sensors underneath? <laughs> so we are doing a top floor where we have bedrooms, stuff like that is, is actually exposed plywood. So we're right now not putting anything there. Although when my kids get older and, you know, unless they're sort of a Tom Cruise mission impossible, it would be nice to know if they are, you know, sneaking out or something. But so we're actually going to start putting it in the areas I didn't have funny. I didn't have the, the new version when we were building was in production. And so, yeah, we'll, we will be retrofitting it over time. But yeah, the idea is to be able to, as like a, of course, a playground, the living lab of sorts, be able to, you know, use it for uh, residential things as well. The one that we, I, I think are waiting for is we have a version that we're working with actually another company on that has a heating element to it. So a targeted heating element. So it's a, a heater and a sensor. And so that's the one that we'll probably go for just because uh, I can get a lot more utility out of that from the residential side. That's amazing. I can also think of one more application in my house where there's a certain area that my dog's not allowed to go. And I want the whole yeah, house sure. to beep when the dog goes there. So I'm yeah, waiting for yeah, that technology. Probably. Great. So where do you see Scanalytics and the technology going over the next few months, years? What's your vision here? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the work leading up to now has been all the, the underlying, you know, R&D and everything, as well as customer deployments, learning from those customer deployments and taking that back into where we take the technology. So now we're at a really, I think, interesting inflection point where it's about scaling and covering as much space as possible and doing that so that, again, going back to that flywheel of being able to say, hey, look, if, if we've made this easy to go to market for the end customer and we've made it easy to go to market with the leveraging the existing supply chain, which are two things that I think we've done and have, have you know some evidence to support that. Then I think the future, is, again, is all about how do we make sure that from there, if that's the consideration, then we should see sort of exponential increase in the space that I'll say gets enabled or, or gets online. Uh, and then it'll, it'll be about, do we make the constellation of applications available enough, valuable enough for the continual extraction of value out of all these different types of spaces. So pretty excited about where those go. I think a lot of them in the next you know year or so will be pretty heavily driven, of course, by emission reduction, cost reduction, and additional application usage that, you know, some of the ones that we talked about. But yeah, time, I think obviously time will tell and we'll see if there's any other super surprising macro environmental events that, that we'll have to navigate. Hopefully all for the positive. Joe, right. the, this has been fascinating. So if people wanted to find out more about Scanalytics, et cetera, where would they go and how would they reach out to you? Uh, yeah, so broader information, I think, is at scanalyticsinc.com, as well as we, we've got a sort of specific site from the work that we've been doing with Department of Energy, which is flooring.energy. Those are probably two, two, you know, two of the best spots. Otherwise, of course, um, you know, finding me on on LinkedIn or something to connect uh, about, uh, you know, any any specific use cases or something. But uh, but yeah, I think those are probably the best sources. That's great. Thank you, and good luck to Scanalytics. We've been talking to Joe Scanlon, CEO of Scanalytics, and this has been again a very fascinating and for me, I learned a lot through this conversation as well. This is There's a Device for That, and you can get a new episode every Tuesday. Please be sure to subscribe. 
There's a device for that. Is brought to you by Esper, the industry's first and leading DevOps platform for device fleets. If you're interested in learning more about how Esper can help you better manage your device fleet, reach out. Go to esper.io or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at esperdev at E-S-P-E-R-D-E-V. Thank you for listening. I'll see you on the next episode of There's a Device for That.